Welcome to Dumpy Little Unicorn. Today I am joined by Dan Patrick and we are sitting in the reading corner at the South Bank Centre. Hi Dan. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, so this is our sort of second attempt at the podcast, seeing as we were plagued with technical difficulties at the first one. So um, this is a rarity for me. I'm actually meeting somebody face to face. So I will try and not to embarrass myself too much and be weird. Uh, <laughs> That's right, you're in good company. <laughs> so, you're the author of the Erebus trilogy and the In Progress Ashen Torment trilogy, and also there was that other trilogy that we started to speak about. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, so my kind of first foray into sort of long form writing um, was uh, the war fighting manuals that weren't fiction per se they were more like in-universe artifacts so they were guides to how to conduct warfare if you were an elf a dwarf or an orc respectively and that was done very mindfully and they were done with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek and kind of taking having a little bit of fun with pop culture tropes around those three races okay Um, and somebody described it as a kind of Terry Pratchett meets Sun Tzu so that was that was kind of nice, yeah. Because um, they they could have been incredibly dry and yes. low-faced, um, but I wanted to avoid that. So so that w- and they were about thirty thousand words long okay. each, um, and they were published by Galance. So that was a nice kind of gentle way into publishing. Yeah. Um, and then the editor of those, Simon Spantons, he said to me, "Do you have anything else kind of on the on the back burner?" Um, and I said, "Well, as it happens, I've kind of got this kind of." Like a weird Gormenghar style book and his eyes lit up because yeah. he's a huge Mervyn Peake fan um, and so I, I kind of polished it up um, I, I was very lucky during that time I attracted an agent yeah. and she helped me polish it up and well then we submitted the novel to Simon and he was really excited so um, that was my first kind of full novel like that went went to yeah, and that was the boy with the porcelain blade. That was the boy with the porcelain blade. Yeah, so yeah. I read that la- about this time last year actually, and mm. it was really enjoyable. And I I'm just <laughs> I did love all the. Sort of it, I do love a good sort of court intrigue type book, and that just sort of had it in spades. Yeah, I, I think I surprised myself with that. I initially had a kind of quite a gothic kind of swashbuckling novel. Not that that's really a thing, but apparently I was trying to make that a thing. But I was unemployed when I wrote yeah. that book, and I would write in the mornings and in the afternoons. It would be terribly cold because it was about February, March time, and I was unemployed. So I'd wrap myself in a huge blanket and watch episodes of The West Wing, and I think I just kind of ended <laughs> up channeling bits of okay, yeah, <laughs> kind of fast dialogue, intrigue, kind of it. Kind of obviously, it's not. A, uh, I didn't directly lift anything no. from The West Wing, but I I kind of feel like the 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 politics kind of got in there yeah yeah and that's that, that's quite evident because I do I do love sort of like intrigue and that's always something that I find really enjoyable to read and it's that f- sort of fast-paced sort of rat-a-tat dialogue as you're you know walking through corridors is is one of those things yeah. that is, it's just quite attractive and it doesn't matter whether it's sort of like set like with the West Wing politically in literally the White House or whether it's in any other sort of I suppose closed community where you get people are always trying to sort of jockey for, po- for position and that's 
that's always an interesting yeah that thing. was a huge part yeah. of the boy with a porcelain blade and, and kind of it sets the tone for the rest of the series the, the, the series does open out from just that castle venue and kind of incorporates the rest of the island but uh, yeah it was it's, it's quite personal it's kind of like an extended mm -hmm. family really all, all kind of jockeying for position yeah. and power as you say against this backdrop of kind of horror and um mystery so yeah yeah it's good i recently sort of just what was last week now um finished witch sign and oh, okay. i bloody loved it it was <laughs> so it was so good um i just thought it was tremendous and I think one of the things I thought that it just feels really relevant at the moment mm -hmm. sort of there was just the whole sense there was well partly it kind of reminded me of the Nazis in World War Two and mm -hmm. I thought that that seemed quite but then it sort of struck me of how it all seems to be sort of cycling back round at the moment and the sort of community that Steiner in and Kel run are based in is very sort of inward looking and that just felt very much like what's happening in the UK at the moment and I was just wondering if that was a deliberate choice yeah I'm I think I am I do follow sort of the news specifically the political news and I think it all kind of filters in a couple of things that were really strong for me when I first started writing the the first book were the fact that uh, Russia had just recently started um, confiscating driving licenses from right. Uh, gay people and trans people and and also it was a time when um, the everyday sexism Twitter account was I mean I th I'm sure it's still very prolific yeah. um, but that's when it really caught my attention so so there were bits and pieces in there and I, I do think there's quite a strong correlation between the right wing and the, the poor treatment of women yes yeah. they kind of hark into this kind of 1950s idea that you know yeah. women should be at home or in the kitchen um, it's very kind of socially conservative so so yeah all of that stuff kind of bled in to the novel I couldn't necessarily tell you like the, the no. fine tuning but I definitely knew it was kind of in the blood of the book if you like yeah it just felt sort of really certainly for me it felt very strongly that it's almost like a cautionary tale of what happens when communities refuse to sort of look outwards and, and work together and just focus on you know their own and it, it's sort of like what happens when they come for you and it's that yeah. sort of yeah, thing a, that's a big part of it I hadn't thought of it in quite those terms before but yeah there's definitely um, for those people that haven't read the book there's a the classic kind of trope that um, if when teenagers sort of come of age they might start developing magical powers and magical powers are illegal and the empire really frowns on that and the the countries that aren't part of the empire, the so-called scorched republics, they will have an agreement that they let the empire come and take their magical children yeah. away. Um, so there are you can make lots of yeah. analogies yeah. about um, you know oppressive powers that knock on your door in the night and come and take you away yeah. for whatever reason, be it um, sort of gender, sexuality, um, polit political ideology, so on and so forth. Like. Um, I didn't have one particular one in mind, but they're all there. Yeah, I think it's something like an amalgam of mm. everything that sort of that that fear of of those that come in the night. Yeah, yeah. And I also wanted to talk about Steiner and, and Kelrin because they're such an interesting sort of like family dynamic. Because mm. Steiner's the sort of the big brother, and he's 
always trying to do the, you know, he's the upright one, he does tries to do the right thing. He completely reminded me of Steve Rogers in that no matter sort of like how much he gets beaten down, he always gets back up again. And um, I was I like just, that. yeah, I I was like, oh, come, you know, and then and he sort of gets up and smack, you know, tries yeah. to sort of smack him with his hammer. So he was, he also sort of like holds on to sort of quite a lot of anger because he's almost forced into the position in the book where he's forced into. Mm. And there was one one part where sort of some of the characters that he meets um, on the island, which I'm not going to attempt to say. Yeah. It, it's, it's sort of like there's that element of found family he gets mm-hmm. with them, but also that they help him sort of reach a kind of acceptance with, with some of the things that he's just always done and he feels a bit of resentment for. And I just wondered sort of how you sort of worked through that and what, you know, how that, his character development came about really. Yeah, so in, in the first draft, Kieran wasn't in it so much, but we got to the end of that draft and we really realised that she needed a lot more screen yeah. time. Um, it's interesting what you say about Steiner being the eldest and trying to want to do the right thing because I'm I'm actually the eldest of my family so I think that's maybe where some of it comes from. Um, I also got to the end of the first draft and I knew that I had to go back and mm-hmm. incorporate Kiaran much, much more but I because I think there's that wonderful Terry Pratchett quote, you know, the, the first draft is just you telling yourself the story. Yeah. Um, what I realised was that really a kind of a part of the kind of pitch for the novel is like what do you do if you're the older brother and you're supposed to look out for your family but you're not actually the chosen one it's your little sister yeah um so that's quite a strange power imbalance because i think there's a lot of pressure put on um men to behave in certain ways yeah like you know um to look out for their families to earn a certain amount to you know do all these things um and one of the kind of the things i was able to play with in that is like Steiner's actually not the chosen one in this book but he's just having to kind of get along with the crazy events that yeah. he's caught up in yeah. so that was that was good fun the idea of found family is incredibly attractive to me and I, um, uh, so that was definitely a, 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 con- a conscious decision yeah. for, for Steiner on the island and there's um, I, I guess some of my kind of therapy sort of training crept in there because I really wanted some of the older wiser characters um, like Sundra, um, to sort of help him out a bit yeah. with these very sort of closely held feelings that he's entirely, I feel like he's entirely justified to oh, have. Oh, totally. Yeah. He's, you know, he's, 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 well, he's not quite duped, but he, he feels, it's almost like he has no choice at that point. He, yeah. it, it, he has to sort of like pr- protect his sister. And yeah, he's, he's certainly sort of angry about it. And mm. it's, it, I just thought it was lovely how you sort of made, made him able to sort of like deal with that emotion because quite often you sort of like male characters that you don't ever see them deal with fallout yeah. from things so that was really refreshing oh I'm, I'm glad you had that experience um and i hadn't even considered the fact that yeah a lot of books probably shy away from their male protagonists feelings um because um you know, spoilers, men have feelings too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <coughs> not, they're just made of, like, wood and... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so I thought it was really... Especially young teenage men who are trying to... Because Steiner's 18 in the book, yeah. so, you know, I know lots of kind of medieval purists would say, well, by that point, he'd already be, like, considered 
completely a man and yeah. that's fine but um and you know good good for those medieval purists but as somebody who's uh, not 18 and uh, still come to terms when he actually grew up <laughs> yeah um i think you know i think um it's really important for for young adults to have a bit of guidance and i i think um especially with young men i think that's really missing at the moment yeah um like it's, it's, it's one thing i think quite a lot of young men just they're just told you know that in order to be a man they have to sort of do xyz and you know feelings is not a part of that and it, and I think it's just creating this very sort of toxic um, culture that men are sort of, you know, have forced, having forced upon them. It's 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 awful, and um, you know they just don't have the same emotional intelligence and emotional skills, and that you see it causing quite a lot of problems on the internet and things like that. You see the way that that, yeah, they, that young men react to things, and I mean young women as well, but it's there's that sort of vein of anger and um, entitlement and it's it's you know it's quite frightening and there needs it, you know it can't be all one way or all the other but there needs there needs to be a way to find some balance yeah for sure um and if you know like the the most extreme example of that is there's kind of young kind of shooters in america yeah. um and that's that's really worrying and you just think if these young men had had some maybe male parenting and some compassion and somebody had given them a bit of guidance and they might follow quite a different yeah. route but unfortunately I think these days a lot of kids are left to be parented by screens and yeah that's that's quite dangerous but that's a whole nother conversation, that is another <laughs> conversation. Um, and sort of just to sort of flip it on on its head sort of talking about um, Kelvin, um she's such a fantastic character. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, oh, she's she's just absolutely gorgeous in the way that she she is, and I mean, she she already know, she knows she's different. She knows that she's like the outsider, and how she sort of deals with with that and the whole thing of not being accepted into like the local community is 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 a, a big thing for her. Um, it's sort of, I mean, that's one of the things you said earlier. It's, it's not often that it's the younger sibling that's the one that's the, the chosen one. Um, and I guess that was a deliberate choice on, on your part to sort of play with the tropes and. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, actually, I know I do. I do know the very, the very kind of earliest kind of thing when I was thinking about starting a new project. My kind of initial thought was you know uh, what happens if um harry potter was sent to soviet hogwarts and discovered he was a muggle yeah and then i really really needed a reason why so my harry potter in this case is steiner obviously so my initial kind of creative sort of thought for the project was what happens if harry potter is sent to soviet hogwarts and discovers he's a muggle um and obviously then i needed a reason why my Harry Potter, who's Steiner in this instance, ends up on the island where all the children are t with magical powers are taken. And, and it was because he was sort of covering for his sister who actually does have the arcane, as it's known, um, on the continent. Um, so, so yeah, that's where that came from. And then, as I say, in the first draft, Kilrun was in it a little bit and there was a great kind of 
uh, tension for me anyway of Steiner trying to escape from the island to rescue his sister and his sister trying to master her powers so she could go to the island and rescue him. Yeah. Um, which I enjoyed that kind of symmetry. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, in the, s the second draft, she m came into herself much more. Um, obviously, she needed a kind of wily, cranky uh, old men mentor. Yes. So um, that's where Mistri Mistress Kamalov uh, came from, and I, I had huge fun writing her. Um, she reminded me of Augra from The Dark Crystal. Oh, right. There was this, um, I, yeah, that was just one of the things <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> I didn't really have a strong idea of like what she, who she was like or anything, but she was just one of those characters that was really good fun to write. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, she, could, she could be a bit mischievous and a bit cranky and she could be stern and yeah. I, I sort of really enjoyed all of those things. I quite like writing those kind of mentor characters, like in the Erebus sequence, um, there's a character called Vermeer. Yeah. And whenever I felt a bit stuck, I'd just put Vermeer into a scene because he was instantly, just just made the scene more yeah. fun. Um, so yeah, so so Kieran really is a is a very young person struggling with really really big um, issues yeah. like the the sundering of her family, finding out who she is, her place in the world, and also she's kind of mourning the loss of her brother. Yeah. Um, so um, and also her because she she sort of temporarily loses her father because her father starts drinking. Yeah. So that was a, a real. So she's up against a lot of challenges there, but um, uh, yeah, I, I, I do like writing Kieran. She's she's good fun. She's great, and there's that moment where she sort of assumes her her power, and it, it I was just like, oh my god, that's so cool. She's <laughs> like, yes, go girl. It was, uh, yeah, yeah. I said, I mean, I really did love the book. It was great. Uh, <laughs> um, do you want to do the reading today, or so? Um, because I hate spoilers, I always read from chapter one. So, uh, this is chapter one of which sign? The furnace burned bright in the darkness. The old timbers of the smithy were edged in orange light. Tools hung from iron hooks, gleaming. Steiner loved it here. The smell of hot metal and coal dust. The pleasant ache of muscles hardened from work. Jobs in need of doing and jobs well done. The product of his labour lined the walls. Small knives, pots and pans, hammers, scythes, and the odd sickle. The anvil chimed as Steiner brought the hammer down on the white hot metal. Sweat dampened his brow and ran down his back with each breath. A deep contentment settled upon him. Something was being made. Something was being created. That's enough of that, said his father. Looks like you're making a sword, and you know how the Empire feels about that. Steiner grinned. Could I at least finish it? I'll melt it down afterwards. Marek allowed himself a smile, caught up in Steiner's enthusiasm. A sword does strange things to a man's mind. Being beaten over the head with one thing is much like another, I reckon. Steiner shrugged and gave a chuckle. I mean wielding a sword, you oaf. Marek returned Steiner's chuckle with one of his own. It makes a man think he has some special destiny or privilege. Marek's tone made it clear exactly how he felt about the latter. Not much destiny or privilege in Cinderfell, said Steiner, feeling the joy of creation grow cold, despite the searing heat of the smithy. No, there isn't. It's why I moved here. Marek rolled his heavy shoulders and rubbed one scarred forearm with an equally scarred hand. Come on, we're done for the day. They stepped out beneath overcast skies. Each day, every day, was overcast in Cinderfell. 
The Empire said it was a legacy of the war with the dragons, that the terrible creatures had scorched the skies above the continent for decades to come. Must it always be so grey, muttered Steiner, as the wind chilled the sweat on his skin. It's not like this in the south, said Marek. They can see the sun in Shanizrond. Steiner gave an incredulous snort. Next you'll be telling me the dragons still live. Marek shook his head. No, the Empire saw to that. And you know that when the Empire takes an interest in something, it usually ends up dead. Steiner ran a hand over his jaw. The feel of stubble beneath his calloused fingers still a novelty. The downy fuzz of his early teens had given way to something rougher. So why don't we buy a cart, pack up, and head off to Shanesrond? Steiner followed Marek's gaze as he looked over the town and the cottages that nestled against the steep incline rising up from the coast. The small windows bore heavy wooden shutters stained with salt, and verdant moss clung to the thatched rooftops. The dour atmosphere was well matched by the cruel temperature. Not much of a home, is it? admitted Marek. So why stay? Steiner regretted the question as soon as he saw the pained expression cross his father's face. For a moment they stood in silence beneath the flat grey sky. Marek lifted his eyes to the sea, and Steiner wasn't sure if he was searching or pleading with the choppy waves that danced against the stone pier. You still hope she'll come back? Marek nodded, opened his mouth to speak, then decided against it and headed back into the smithy. Did you sell the sickle we made last week? asked Steiner, keen to change the subject from an absent mother, an absent wife. Marek nodded but said nothing. Steiner was well used to his father's silences. A strange time of year to harvest herbs. Who bought it? One of the fishermen. Marek cleared his throat. I don't remember now. Steiner frowned and pulled off his thick leather gloves. In a town this small they knew every customer by name. The sale of a sickle was no small matter and would bring some much-needed coin. He opened his mouth to press for an answer, but the latch on the front door rattled and his father nodded towards it. I wondered where Kiel had got to, said Marek. The door to the smithy creaked as Kiaran pushed the heavy wood aside. She stepped forward into the furnace's glow. Small for her age, she looked closer to twelve than her sixteen years. Her tunic was overlong, reaching her knees, while her breeches were patched many times. Steiner's hand-me-downs. All their coin was spent on food and supplies for the smithy. Money for clothes was scarce. Would it kill you to pull a brush through your hair before you go to school, said their father with a slow smile. She does a fine impression of a Rosalka, said Steiner, noting the driftwood and black feathers she clutched. Treasures from the beach, no doubt. You said you don't believe in the old tales, replied Kiorun. Steiner shrugged. That may be, but I'm still halfway convinced you're one of them. There are worse things than Rosalka, replied Kiorun. A ship has just arrived in the bay. We were out there not more than a minute ago, replied Steiner. See for yourself if you think I'm a liar, she replied, jutting her chin with an obstinate look in her eye. I'd rather start preparing dinner if it's all the same to you, said their father. He looked away, unwilling to meet their eyes. A ship in the bay means the Empire. And that means a troika of vigilance, said Steiner, feeling the familiar fear the Holy Synod evoked. Perhaps not, Kiara and I would both of them. Not this time. You'll want to see this. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> so you've already published Stormtide, which is the second yes. in the sequence. And the third one, do we have a name for that yet? 
Um, I think I'm allowed to tell you. Okay. I think it's official. Um, this is probably an exclusive, actually. Um, I think the book three is going to be called Nightfall. Brilliant. And yeah. um, when's that out? Uh, when I finish the edits. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I literally just got the edits uh, a couple of nights ago. Uh, so I'm about to embark on tearing the entire book apart and then yeah. reassembling it and hoping it will still make sense, which is always, I always find incredibly daunting. Yeah. Because um, it takes me sort of nine months to a year to get one of these things together and then yeah. the prospect of taking it apart is always loaded with the fear that I'm not going to quite be able to yeah. tie it all up again neatly. But yeah, probably next June or July. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, June, July. So Keep um, an eye out for that. Yes, fingers crossed. <laughs> cool. So now comes the part of the podcast where I ask you the questions that I ask everybody. Okay. And so first off, what have you been reading? It's been a bit of a slow year for me because, um, yeah, w while I was training to be a counsellor, I found it difficult to read fiction yeah. as well as my um, the material that yeah. I had to read for my studies. But I did read Anne Leckie's The Raven Tower, which I right. thought was extraordinary in that it was just so different. Yeah. Um, it's largely a book that's kind of written in the, the s I think, the first and second point of view. Which okay, that's unusual, isn't it? Yeah, it's <laughs> over a long, long form work like that. Um, and even though I've seen other reviewers kind of criticise it of a certain amount of kind of info dumping, it's done yeah. in such a way that is is still authentic with the kind of the tone of the book. Um, and I, I just really enjoyed it. I found it really fr refreshing. And again, it kind of had what we were talking about earlier about kind of small casts of people in fantasy books kind of in one setting, yeah. like courtly intrigue. There's a lot of that that goes on in the Raven Tale. Oh, excellent! I, it is on my, you know, huge mountain of books yeah, that I've yeah. got to read, but um, I yeah. certainly will be moving that up the list. Yeah. And uh, my friend Jen Williams, I read the last book in her trilogy, yes. uh, the Poison Song. Yes. Which uh, I just, yeah, it's it's a it's a real really great thing when one of your friends is also one of your favourite writers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's also quite a relief. <laughs> But yeah, I really like the the stuff in the Poison Song. I think, mm. well, the whole trilogy. I think oh, Jen and I. Yeah, she's. Yeah, I love um, sort of like the Ninth Rain, the whole that whole trilogy and mm. Copper Cat trilogy as well. Yeah, I just yeah, sure. jumped through both of them. They were just fantastic. Um, no, I, I feel a, a strong kinship with Jen because we're both kind of working class writers. I may not be working class now I don't know what I am now but I've mm. got working class in me and we also kind of we don't really identify with the whole grimdark movement yeah so there's that and I think we try and incorporate I, I, I know Jen does I, I try to incorporate kind of diversity and sort yeah. of certain sort of progressive outlook um, so yeah so I, I, I love Jen's book and um, more recently, uh, Joe Abercrombie's new book, A Little Hatred. Right. So I was okay. very lucky to receive a proof of yeah. that. And um, yeah, I mean, what do you say about you know Joe Abercrombie? That's not already been said. He's, he's, he's a he's a force of nature. Yes, so. I, I have read um, a, quite a bit of his work. I haven't mm. got round to the, the new stuff yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. So moving on, the other thing I usually ask people is, what have you been listening to? Um, if you do listen to things. Yeah. So when I write, I listen to a lot of movie soundtracks. Mm -hmm. I find it difficult to listen to music that has lyrics while yeah, I'm writing. Yeah. It just it kind of does something to my brain. I am a kind of a, a bit of a lifelong Nine Inch Nails fan, so I was really excited when 
Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross started making film soundtracks. Yes. Uh, so that's good. The only downside to that is a lot of those soundtracks are really tense, so I feel quite anxious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like after about an hour, especially the Bird Box soundtrack. Right. Um, yeah, I've, I've kind of come away from writing feeling really anxious, can't quite work out why, and then I... Realise what so you've been yeah. listening to, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but no, I, I do... I do listen to um, quite a lot of music. I mm-hmm. also like quite ambient and atmospheric kind of electronica. And then on a slightly lighter note, um, sometimes I'll veer into a bit of Motown or synthwave just to just as I'm going about my day. Yeah. Because yeah. I, d- I don't want to be all doom and gloom all the time. <laughs> yeah, you can't. This can't be the full time mopey goth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was exhausting being a full time mopey goth, and um, you know. Uh, so yeah, you got to have a bit of light and shade. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The next question I ask is, I think you're a bit of a gamer, aren't you? So what have you been playing? Yeah. So a while ago, um, one of my wife's friends, who was actually a bridesmaid at our wedding, said to me, oh, you know, what's this D&D thing about? Um, So I explained it to her. And then I said, oh, and there's also basically a kind of Star Wars equivalent. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's currently published by uh, Fantasy Flight. Um, And her eyes lit up. She was like, well, this sounds awesome. So I finally kind of got myself organised and we assembled a little group. Yeah. So there's uh, one of the players who's absolutely brand new, one of the other players that's played a little bit of D&D for about a year, and then there's one of the other players who's an old hand yep. and a, like, a long-term friend of mine and ex-flatmate and occasional cat sitter. He's just a, an all-round solid yeah. dude. And yeah. he's one of those players that's really good when you've got new players because he, he's, yeah, he's a bit yeah. of a kind of mentor. Um, so we've been running a kind of... Uh, shadowy kind of film noir version of kind of Star Wars. Oh, fantastic! Um, <laughs> and it's been just like really good fun. Um, I I quite like just having three players because yeah. they get a bit more screen time. Yeah. Screen time each. Uh, when you've got four or five players, it's quite a lot to manage. Yeah, and you, you, there's also potential for one of the players to sort of like hide and not get involved Um, because I've done a a bit of role play and Mm. uh, I'm always quite shy because it it takes me a while to sort of gain confidence to just you know you know make a fool of yourself basically in front of your friends (laughs) or again it feels like it feels like it's it's sort of impro Um, I've just recently found a new group to play with and we played a group uh, a sort of like one shot shadow run game Mm. which was a hoot so we're starting up this sort of like semi-regular oh that's great thing so yeah. it, it's quite nice to be get sort of get back into it because I've played some D&D mm. and I've played s- sort of quite a lot of umpire in my time ah, I see right okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so um, yeah no I am lucky enough to be part of a kind of monthly D&D group um, oh nice and I get to play in that one so that's yeah. a real treat because quite often um, I am a game master um, and funnily enough, I one of the other players is Jen Williams, and one of the other players is uh, Rebecca Levine, who right. also writes fantasy, uh, among, among other things. Uh, Rebecca's very busy. Um, so yeah, that's really good fun, and I'm just playing a, a kind of straight up, very uncomplicated good guy, so I'm like a paladin. Ex- oh, I love a paladin. Azamar. <laughs> you know, I just, uh, you know, basically kind of like Captain America with wings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Um, so yeah, it's a very sort of uncomplicated good yeah. guy, and it's just quite nice to do that. It's, it's, yeah, it's quite not everything has to be you know, all about the dark. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, so yeah, and I mean I've, I've probably been playing kind of RPGs or tabletop war games since I was about twelve. Yeah. Um, I remember 
very, uh, very, when I was a teenager, we made so much noise in the lounge one day that um, my mum banned us to the ga- garden shed. Right. Uh, <laughs> which would have been fine, except that's where my stepdad kept all of his onions. So right. it was this really S- weird... Smell. Really weird <laughs> mixture of us, like, you know, playing Warhammer Fantasy yeah. role play and the really strong smell of um, freshly grown onions. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of funny what sticks with you. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so um, I, I really like that, and I, I'm a huge fan of writing my own adventures, yeah. which um, is incredibly time-consuming, but does bring me a lot of pleasure. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I guess it's, it's a reward as well, because then you can um, tailor things to your group. Absolutely, to yeah. that, And then I guess it makes it a more enriching experience for everybody in that case. Yeah, I think one of the problems with published adventures is that it's very kind of one-size-fits-all. Yeah. And it requires a lot of work on behalf of the game master to make it gel with his existing yeah. group. Um, so I do tend to buy kind of published adventures, but I generally just pinch s- specific yeah. scenes yeah. Or, <laughs> or bits and pieces and and try and incorporate them into a whole of my own making. Um, but yeah, no, I, I really like RPGs. Oh, cool. And do you play like um, video games? Very, very badly. Oh, so do I. Yeah, Tell yeah. Um, and um, I'm really noticing my reflexes are getting slower. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, was, I was never terribly good at video games, like from yeah, from uh, from being from a teenager. Yeah. But yeah, I think I'm I'm actually getting worse. Um, I tend to I do enjoy XCOM too because that's more of a kind yeah. of uh, kind of strategy game rather than requiring any. Um, eye-hand coordination on my part um, and I really like Star Wars Battlefront too because yeah. just for running around and you know as a scout trooper or whatever yeah <laughs> oh excellent so uh, the next question is what have you seen so it's whether you like watch yeah. much on TV or any films that you've seen recently uh, so uh, my wife and I really liked uh, watching elementary um, yeah obviously there was one season that was a bit a bit off but I think the first two seasons were incredible um, and um, then it looked like it was going to be cancelled and then the ratings picked up and now they're doing like the final season right, so we're okay. really enjoying that and um, I think Johnny Lee Miller is incredible I think Lucy Liu is amazing I love the fact that they turned John Watson into Joan Watson yeah. and also that there's never been a hint of any romantic Oh, that's good. Kind it's refreshing. Of Will they, won't they? Yeah, there's yeah, none, like of that. none of that. It, it's just... <laughs> um, and it's not that they're not both um, sexual beings. Mm-hmm. They do have sex lives. Um, just not with each other. Um, and so that's that's really kind of refreshing. Um, uh, so, yeah, elementary I'm a big fan of. Um, we went to see uh, Hustlers at the cinema recently. <gasps> that was so good. <laughs> um, I just thought it was a huge amount of fun, but also... I couldn't remember the last time I'd been to see a film where there were that many women yeah. on the screen. I guess um, the Ocean's Eight, most r- Ocean's Eight was yeah. it? Yeah, probably would have been the last one like that. Um, and I also thought it was fascinating how they set um, what could have been quite sleazy and exploitive yeah. against a historical backdrop of the financial crash um, in in the United States and how in very real term ways that affected lap dancers yeah. <laughs> um, and I just thought that was fascinating um, so yeah it was it was a, a, a really interesting film um, but also ultimately I think it's quite a, a really about sisterhood yeah and um, it's 
I, and Jennifer Lopez just seems to be, I, I was like, what? <laughs> How yeah. amazing she looks throughout. There's like never a point where her, she isn't perfection in that film. It's just great. It was quite extraordinary because I actually have a background in performing arts. I actually trained as a dancer way, way back right, in my okay. distant past. And um, obviously we, we left the cinema and uh, Juliet, my wife, went onto IMDb immediately mm -hmm. and said you didn't know that Jennifer Lopez is like in her early 50s or whatever and in that film she does the most incredible pole routine um, that requires shocking amounts of upper body yes. strength um, and you know as is appropriate for a film of that nature she does it without many clothes on yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah what an incredible <laughs> I mean, performer. yeah, yeah, just <laughs> absolutely outstanding. Um, and is there anything else that you've been watching of late that has um, been keeping you interested? The um, I'm going to forget who who created it now. I think it's Ken Burns and Lynn Novak. Um, they created um, the Vietnam War. Um, it's titled as a film, but it's right. actually you know, a really, really kind of long series documentary. Yeah. And each episode is about an hour and a half long. Okay. Um, and in many ways, I feel like the the experience of watching the Vietnam War documentary feels a bit like the Vietnam War because okay. it's so long. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and e each episode is long and harrowing. And um, I don't know whether that was a creative decision on that, their part, but um, it's really fascinating to me because I didn't study anything of that nature at school and, and yet Vietnam is something that looms really large yeah. in recent history and casts a shadow still um, and yeah it's just really fascinating seeing both the, the political backdrop for the war but also the actual war as yeah. it unfolded yeah. in sort of both North and South Vietnam so yeah I, I found that really interesting and um, I'm, I'm not sure it's going to inform any of my work, but mm -hmm. it's, it's just sort of interesting. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things, it's, I, spe I suppose even like recent history, sort of things that have happened in the last 50 years, mm. it's, because is it 50 years? I'm not sure. But yeah, that sort of, perhaps near almost, yeah, I guess it must be, um, that sort of like recent history and how it informs sort of everything that, that's happened since. Yeah, and it, I don't think I realised how huge it was but also because there were there were peace protests around the world not yeah. just in the states and also during that time there was you know the assassination of JFK yeah uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King and then the assassination of Robert Kennedy as well yeah um, and it's, it's you know it's quite frightening when you think of like that many political figures yeah got killed in such a short space of time and you know I, you were saying how like my books kind of feel like quite current um, I, f I find it really worrying that you know we had Joe Cox murdered yeah. in the street quite recently and I really hope that we're not set on a course where more of that kind of thing happens yeah um, so so yeah I it's, it's interesting watching uh, the, the kind of Vietnam War documentary and I can kind of feel like a, a little bit of a little bit of virtue for actually educating myself yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So yeah. the last question for today, or yes. the last of my questions, I have a couple of questions from Twitter, sure, yeah. uh, is what do you think needs more love? Um, I think unplugging needs more love. Okay. The concept of unplugging. Um, so, um, yeah, I just, whenever you see interviews with um, social media uh, CEOs, 
usually the journalists are quite savvy and they say to the CV CEO, you know, so are, are your, do your children have an account on X yeah. platform? And the CEO always says, oh, no, 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 I've never let my children on this platform. And I, I find it fascinating that the sort of people that run those companies think it's okay for the rest of us yeah. to use something that they wouldn't give to their own children. Um, and I think, I think there's plenty of anecdotal evidence as well as some actual statistical evidence that um, social media is pretty bad for mental health. And re just recently, actually, I decided to put my money where my mouth was and uh, right, okay. go off Twitter. For, so I might go off for a month. I might go off permanently. Okay. <laughs> I'll see how it goes. Um, but yeah, it's, I find it quite baffling. And I think particularly for creatives, um, where there's a danger that you can be constantly comparing yourselves yeah. to others, both in terms of, you know, is my book getting that much traction? Are people talking about it? Do people like it? Um, you know, what kind of reviews am I getting? All of these things can kind of play into your sort of day-to-day -day headspace. Yeah. Um, and can be quite overwhelming. Yes. Because there's no real off switch. I mean, no. obviously we're all adults and we can log out at any time, but um, I think these platforms by their very nature are very Moorish. Yes. Uh, and they have that kind of addictive quality. So, so yeah, I'm going cold to turkey okay. at the moment. <laughs> well, good luck. Thank you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still haven't quite kicked Facebook, but that's kind of how I stay in touch with my family. Yes, so. that, that, that I've, got, I've got Twitter, which is I, I sort of where I'm more me, and I'm, you know, make fr I make friends mm. with like lots of people on Twitter, but it's like Facebook is where I'm friends with my family, yeah. and um, I very carefully curate uh, what goes on there because uh, absolutely you know, yeah. yeah you have to different, audi <laughs> different audiences yeah. absolutely so um, I have a couple of questions from Twitter mm. you're going to love this first one <laughs> first one's from Adela Terrell yeah how does it feel to be criminally underrated <laughs> <laughs> oh boy <coughs> um, yeah that, that's somewhat of a poison chalice of a question I feel like <laughs> I if I say yes yes I am criminally underrated I'm going to sound like a massive, egotistical, terrible person. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I feel criminally underrated. I would like to think my my books are of a certain amount of merit. Yeah. Um, I think this kind of ties in with my previous answer about social media. I think the diff most difficult thing about being a creative right now is just being seen in the marketplace. Yeah. Because there's so much. Um, material and this isn't just limited to books like this is in every creative endeavor be it you know music theatre whatever like you know you have to submit your book or you have to go to an audition if you're a dancer yeah. or you're uploading your music to YouTube or you know whatever if you're a musician um, gaining any kind of traction and getting getting the word out about the, th the, the passion project yeah. that you've made is just it feels like hard all the time um, so yeah I, I wouldn't say I feel criminally underrated but I would say that I do spend a lot of the time feeling quite invisible <laughs> yeah it's I think that's one thing as somebody and I, I read quite a lot not as many as much as some of my friends I'm friends with Womble he, he, he reads a phenomenal amount mm. um, and it, it's almost like I feel guilty because I can't read enough mm -hmm. and but then what I do read and what I do enjoy, I'm very passionate about. And then mm. I, I'll go and sort of 
I, I go a bit e evangelical and I'm like, you must read this book. That's great. And um, <laughs> I have been known to do that. I've That's been nagging people until they, they actually say, read the book. Um, so yeah, it's one of those things, there's like such a number of authors who I think are absolutely fantastic, mm. who for whatever reason aren't being, you know, lauded from the, you know, well, people yelling from the treetops about how fantastic they are and it's it's getting the word out so yeah. yeah if I do read something and I do love it I do try and make sure that everybody knows that I've loved it and I probably drive people sort of a bit batty really but yeah it's well, no, one mean, of those I things you've got to be passionate about stuff so. yeah yeah absolutely so um and I think the bookseller did a poll back in 2014 or 15 certainly within the last five years and the, the, it was revealed that the UK published more books that year than any other country on earth. Now, when you think we're an island that's smaller than, than yes. the state of Texas, yeah. <laughs> that's that's quite phenomenal. Um, so, so yeah. So, th I, I haven't really answered Ada Terrell's question, and I, I'm very touched by it. But um, yeah, I, I think invisibility is the thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And Geek Cliche has asked a couple of questions. First one is: as a qualified counsellor. Do you think that skill set helps you write? Um, yeah, I really like that question. Um, so when I wrote The Boy with the Porcelain Blade, that was actually before I'd had any counselling training. That's a, that's a little fib, actually. I'd, I'd done an, a year's introduction course, mm -hmm. but I hadn't done anything more serious than that. And I feel that The Boy with the Porcelain Blade is quite a psychological novel because yeah. all the flashback chapters tell you a little bit about a little something about Lucian's childhood um, and you know I, as a as an author I guess I'm very much like Luc <laughs> Freud where I'm, I'm basically asking my protagonist you know tell me about your mother or tell me yeah. about your childhood yeah. and how is that going to shape you in, in the present um, and that informs the whole book about the, the events that shaped Lucian during his childhood kind of form who he is in, yeah. the, in the present and um, so I've always kind of approached characters from quite a psychologically minded perspective and one of the hugest compliments I had when I was starting out from my then editor Simon Spanton he said you know I, I just really love your characters and I, I think in the third book particularly he said you know all the characters kind of move and weave so closely that they um, it feels like theatre almost yeah. it feels like a play um, so that was a, like a huge um, compliment um, and I always, I always try and get under the skin of, you know, what, what does this character want? How are they feeling? Um, you know, the, the real interiority of the character. Um, and I think, I think, hopefully, that makes them feel very real. Yeah. Very. Um, if you don't necessarily like them, you can at least engage with them and understand yeah. them. Um, so yeah. Hopefully, that's something that I'm going to get better at. <laughs> cool. And the final question is, will the last book in the Ash and Torment trilogy be dedicated to Neville and Luna? <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you that don't know, um, uh, my wife is Juliet Mushins, the literary agent, and uh, she is a huge Harry Potter fan. And she has two British short-haired cats uh, who are named Neville and Luna, uh, after Luna Lovegood and Neville Longbottom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Neville and Luna kind of pop up in book two ish. Um, so I 
I some I kind of play a little bit with Norse mythology, mm -hmm. um, and I think it was Odin had two ravens or yes. crows called Huggin yeah. and Munin, yeah. um, thought and memory. So my own kind of nod to that was having uh, a goddess. Um, I'm going to get this back to front now, which is really embarrassing because it's my universe. But yeah, she she basically basically has two cats called Sense and Diplomacy. Oh, fantastic! Um, <laughs> and um, so yeah, there is a, a kind of more wintry death goddess. Yeah. Um, and then there's the other goddess who has two cats. And if the the goddesses don't always appear sort of corporeally in the real world, but sometimes they might send their messengers. Right. So so cats and ravens appear at times when the goddess is particularly strong with that yeah. character. Um, and that was just, it's quite nice kind of playing with yeah, that, that kind yeah. of big epic fantasy stuff because um, I hadn't done that so much in the previous trilogy. I'd kind of, I'd kept, <coughs> I'd kept with the Erebus sequence, it was, it was more of kind of like a gothic horror kind of also like science fantasy, which is yeah. a really weird bunch of subgenres to yeah, mash together. And, and also like Renaissance Italy, which I, I love that <laughs> yeah, kind of, yeah. the aesthetic of that anyway. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, um, I read one review that was furious with me because I spent so much time describing my character's clothes. <laughs> <laughs> oh so no, I love that. So I'm going to take that to the bank because I'm like, okay, like, because um, I actually think a person's wardrobe um, can tell you a huge amount about that person. Sure, yeah. Um, so especially in like courtly intrigue. Yeah. Like, um, so for example, recently the Queen has been a huge... It's oh, she's been a subject of huge speculation about what brooch yes. she's wearing. I love that <coughs> the when she does, uh, or where she wears the the hat, which is basically the blue hat with the yellow flowers to yeah. be like the EU, and she's like, "Yes, you're doing it with your wardrobe, yes." <laughs> and so that that way of sort of communicating something without yeah. stating it, yes, um, and and that that's really interesting to me. And you know, I do have a flair for theatrical from way back. Yeah, um, I do wear dark swishy coats. I do like you know boots and stuff, <laughs> um, and I've I, and also I'm a huge Star Wars fan. And yeah. if you look at the the wardrobe components of all of the films over yes. the years; they're just extraordinary. Um, so I really wanted to have a little bit of fun with that myself. And if one reviewer didn't like it, then so be it. <laughs> ah, who cares? It's no, I'm I love like when you get really into like how many buttons and what the, they all signify and that kind yeah, of thing. It's yeah. it's like that whole other language and like the language of flowers it's I th that kind of thing where you can like send a message and be really acerbic with it and yeah, that yeah. that whole I love things like that it's just it's just like an, a very extra level of um, you know throwing shade and I quite enjoy that <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I, I kind of miss that I don't have so much in um, in the new books because it's kind of slightly more yeah. um, kind of Scandinavian slash kind of very practical um, kind of pseudo-Russian slash yeah. Soviet kind of uh, aesthetic um, so everything's very functional um, but yeah uh, the, the whole wardrobe component is really good fun <laughs> cool thank you very much thank you very much for having me okay.